You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of the North American Francophone Podcast. I'm your host, Claire-Marie. I'd like to invite you to join me in understanding the history and complex culture of Francophone peoples in North America. In this episode, we're going to explore the food and cultural traditions of Francophone Canada by way of cookbooks and food traditions. There is just something about family traditions and heirloom recipes that can't compete with even the best food out there. For example, my grandfather's French-Canadian stew is still one of my favorite stews ever. And I mean, I've tried stews from Michelin star restaurants, I've tried stews from Julia Child's cookbook, and still that very simple recipe, it just remains with me. It's like the thumbprint of my family. And that's very special. Now, in French Canada, a tight-knit community that was grouped together through language and through religious customs, they also did the same thing. They would keep their recipes within communities, within families, within church congregations, and they began recording them very early. But the original recipes didn't just appear out of nowhere. They had originally come from France, they were brought from the different regions of France, and different regions of Europe. I mean, the French Canadians are not just comprised of French origin people, but also people from the Jewish diaspora, from Ireland, from Germany, from Italy, etc. But the real main cookbook that was used in French Canada at the outset was from France. Now, archives indicate that this cookbook was originally published in France in 1739 and written by Menon. Now, if we think about the perspective we have today, where we're able to get in our car and drive to huge supermarkets where we can find food from across the world, one has to wonder what kind of food and what kind of recipes were in a cookbook that was compiled in 1739. Now, you have to remember that they were, of course, more simple than recipes that you'll find in cookbooks of today. However, they were going to be written for the bourgeois class, the people who could afford to have their food transported from other places, the people who could have enough resources to move themselves from France to the New World. So we're not talking about peasant food here. We're not talking about simple, simple, simple recipes. We're talking about a little bit more complex recipes for people who were moneyed, who had land and who had territory. Now, these people who move across the Atlantic and establish themselves in the New World wanted to recreate what they had before in France. And, of course, with the harsh climate of North America, that wasn't always possible. So things became more seasonal, but still the recipes remained the same, although they were adapted for new environments and new traditions that they were learning in the New World, particularly owing to the First Nations who were already well-established in North America. So based on the fusion between old traditional recipes from Europe and the new techniques that they're learning in the new world, French Canadians are going to publish their first cookbook in French in Quebec in 1825, and that is called La Cuisinière Bourgeoise, or The Bourgeois Cook. 
and it's an improved publication of all of the recipes that existed in the 1739 edition, which still kept a lot of the original recipes. They didn't want to throw them all to the wayside. And I'm quoting here, it says in French that it gave l'art de gouverner la cave et les vins, or the art of governing one's wine cellar and of understanding wines. Now, if you take a moment and you think about Canada, and you think about Quebec, it doesn't seem to be the best viticultural region possible, which made that seem a little bit old world, a little bit separate from the everyday life of someone taking care of a home, of someone working in the agricultural industry. It just, it seemed a little bit far away. So it was kept in there as a tradition. Many people who moved to the New World did have winemaking families uh, and failed, for the most part, at making wine once they got to North America. There were some variants that survived and worked well, uh, but for the most part, a lot of wine was still being made in France, not so much in North America. So there were elements of the cookbook, uh, of the traditions, of the um, ingredients that were required for recipes that just didn't make sense for North America's landscape, for North America's produce, for North America in general. And so finally, by 1840, there is a Canadian cookbook that comes out. Now, this cookbook is published in Quebec, it is written by people in Quebec, it borrows traditions from France, but it is truly the first time where we get to see the mark of a French-Canadian, and I underscore Canadian, palette in a cookbook. Now, unfortunately, the title of this cookbook is a lot less eloquent or succinct than the first one. The second cookbook, and pardon the time that it takes to read this long title in French, but the new cookbook is entitled Nouvelle Cuisinière Canadienne Quinquennat Tout ce qui est nécessaire de savoir dans un ménage, tel que l'achat des diverses sortes de denrées, le recette les plus nouvelles et les plus simples de préparer les potages, les rôtis de toute espèce, la pâtisserie, les gelées, glaces, sirop, confiture, fruits, sauces, pudding, crème et charlotte, poissons, volailles, gibier, œufs, légumes, salades, marinades, différentes recettes pour faire diverses sortes de breuvages, liqueurs, etc., etc. For a brief translation of that, just as brief as the title, the English is more or less the new Canadian cook containing all that is necessary to know in a household, such as the purchase of various kinds of commodities, the newest and simplest recipes per for preparing soups, roasts of all kinds, pastries, jellies, ice creams, syrups, jams, fruits, sauces, puddings, creams, and charlottes, fish, poultry, game, eggs, vegetables, salads, pickles, different recipes for making various kinds of beverages, liqueurs, etc., etc. A very concise title for a very long book. And I'm not joking about the long book. It's around 250, 270 pages full of recipes and information. I'm currently looking, as I'm, I'm speaking to you, at a microfilm document that was recorded in 1982 and was posted online on archive.org of the fifth edition of this cookbook. And it starts off with an introduction about food. It tells you a little bit about the vocabulary. So what are cooking terms? What do people need to know when they're talking about cooking? Which it seems like a very advanced guide about what you need to know to become a chef. 
But if you think about it, the people who are going to be using this more or less are going to be using them in the home setting. So this is like an access manual um, for cooking. It continues on about what does it mean to be a Canadian cook? So it's got aphorisms. It talks about what it means to live a good life. It talks about how to choose good meats, how to choose good chicken, how to choose good fish. And then it continues on talking about how to make the most simple recipes. So how to make bouillon, for example. It has a whole bunch about how to make bouillon, how to make soups, how to make soups with bread, how to make soups with um, cauliflower, how to make soups with different ingredients that they have. Um, it's soup, uh, potato soup I'm looking at right now with milk. Very simple recipes with North American products. I'm also looking here at, uh, it continues on with uh, several pages of soups, about five or six pages of soups, uh, almost every single um, ingredient you could possibly imagine of soups. So if you're thinking about very boring soups, well, they're actually eating a lot of variety based upon the season uh, in Canada. If we continue on in the cookbook, I'm still flipping through soups, is ragouts. There's going to be, let's see, more soup, more soup, onion soup, fish soup, and then chapter two uh, talks to us about something called beef in general, le du bœuf en général. So how to boil it, how to make steak, how to make filet, how to, how to really cut your meat and treat your meat well. Now, you think about this, Many people today aren't even taught this, you know, unless you go to cooking school, you're not going to learn this. But this would have been a reference guide that most people had in their homes. Chapter 3, different ways to um, make accommodations for veal. So you can see that they didn't just have beef, they're having veal. I'm going to continue looking through this. and It's pages upon pages of veal, uh, talking about the different ways to cook it. And then chapter 4 talks about lamb and talking about how to treat lamb, how to how to cook lamb, the different parts of lamb that you can cook. So you can see it's a very comprehensive guide to cooking. Now for some reason when I hear 1840 I have in my mind sort of a frontier cookbook, you know, very simple recipes, most things cooked with flour and water, but this is much more advanced, much more complicated than what I was expecting of the cuisine from that time period. It really is. Now, to continue on with the book, chapter 5 talks about pork. Chapter 6 talks about poultry in general. Chapter 7 is an important chapter because it talks about game that one would catch in Canada or one would hunt in Canada. Um, and this provides the Canadian chef a different perspective of what they would have been hunting in Canada as versus in France. Then chapter 8 continues on. It talks about different ways to prepare Canadian seafood. So maybe some seafood that uh, a person who came from France had no idea about but were encountering for the first time in North America. And then moving away from more of the game and the fish and um, the beef sections, chapter 9 talks about puddings, how to make puddings, the different types of puddings, like raisin pudding, for example, I'm looking at right now, uh, jam pudding. So it seems like some of the recipes that would have been shared across European cultures, for example, I'm thinking of people from England or Ireland also having these recipes and enjoying them in different parts of Canada. And then chapter 10 talks about pastries in general. And at the beginning, at the beginning it says, remarque. 
Souvent, la farine est sûre et on manque de faire une bonne pâtisserie. Cela peut provenir aussi de ce que la farine est grugée au moulin. So they're talking about problems with the, the flour after it comes from the mill. So possibilities of there being distortions in the recipes or issues that come with the recipes. We don't even have that in our recipes today. You know, we think about a cup of flour as being a cup of flour because we refined that process so much. So you almost have to think about what was it like to buy flour back in 1840? What were the issues that could come about with trying to acquire good quality flour? And then it continues on talking about donuts, beignets, of course. Um, then they have beignets d'une autre manière. So beignets or donuts done another way. Uh, biscuits, so cookies, so they have uh, cheese cookies, they have Scottish cookies, biscuits écossais, um, biscuits à l'anglaise, English style cookies. Um, so it's kind of surprising to see different cultures represented in this Canadian cookbook in French. And continuing on, just so you can get a full view of what this book has within it, Uh, chapter 11 talks about ways to cook eggs, many ways to cook eggs and use eggs. And chapter 12 talks about grilling, it talks about deep frying, it talks about sauces that you can use. I see bechamel, for example, the bechamel sauce that we're so familiar with, beurre noir, dark butter, um, friture, so the way to, to fry. Huile de rose. Now this one's very interesting and I've never encountered it in modern cooking, but rose oil in cooking. I've, I've seen rose water, but this gives a recipe for how to make rose oil. I almost feel like cooking from this cookbook would be very interesting in 2019, just to see what 1840 had to offer. And it goes through liaison, so how to um, break eggs so that you don't um, crack the yolk, so that you do a, a good job with it, how to make Spanish sauce, how to make spicy sauce, You often don't think of spicy food in 1840, but this cookbook does include spicy food. Now, one of the most important and, I think, amazing sections of this book comes in chapter 13, where the book talks about marinades, or marinades, talking about preserving your meat throughout the winter so that it doesn't go bad, so you continue to have smoked meats throughout the winter, but also how to marinate your meat so that Even in wintertime or in summertime, your meat is going to taste tender, it's going to taste spiced, it's going to taste good. This is very surprising to see in 1840. You'd imagine that for the most part it's going to be salt and pepper and that's about it. This book actually uh, negates that and says that people were thinking about ways to make meat tender, to make meat taste good, and to make meat taste different. And moving on with that idea, thinking about glazes and jellies, That comes in the next chapter. Chapter 14 talks about compote, confiture, so jellies, um, jams, how to make them, how to make them taste good, how to preserve them for the colder seasons, how to make sure that they're going to be not too sugary, that they're going to spread well, etc. That's in chapter 14. And then by 15, it talks about gelées et les glaces, so jellies, and also ice creams. We don't often think about 1800s cooking, particularly late 1800s cooking, including homemade ice creams in Canada, but indeed it did. And the cookbook actually includes a pretty funny note about making ice cream at home. A paragraph says, Les glaces se font rarement dans des maisons bourgeoises. 
Notre recette servira pour les villes où l'on est obligé de les faire soi-même. So, ice cream is rarely made in a bourgeois household. Our recipe serves for cities where one is obliged or required to make them oneself. So basically, you live way off in the countryside, you don't have access to ice cream, here's the way to do it. And uh, some of the um, instructions are very interesting. They have um, cast molds so that they can make the ice cream, and they have glace à la groseille. So this is going to be blackcurrant ice cream. And it says that blackcurrant ice cream is also made the same way as strawberry ice cream, as raspberry ice cream, and as cherry ice cream. So you see that it's not just vanilla ice cream. Actually, this is the first ice cream recipe that's given in this book, followed by vanilla ice cream, and then followed by almond nugget ice cream. It's very surprising to see the flavor profiles that were available in the cookbook in 1840. And then chapter 16, which follows... All of these wonderful ice cream recipes talks about making meringues, it talks about making creams, and here I have found a recipe for crème brûlée, or crème brûlée if you so prefer. And the recipe is in this book based off of another recipe called crème jaune, so it's yellow cream. And the basic recipe tells you to take une pinte de lait, a pint of milk, which of course pint being a little surprising to a France French speaker to see the imperial units being used. Faites bouillir, so to make it boil, avec cannelle et muscade, so with cinnamon and nutmeg. Battez douze jaunes d'œufs, so you'll beat twelve egg yolks, avec des amandes amères bien pillées, so with um, kind of sour or, or not sweet almonds that are well peeled and then to add a little bit of cream to it. And then after you do all of that, then what you'll do is you actually take this and you put it into a casserole. So very much like um, a Le Creuset, if you're thinking about a Le Creuset, you boil that all together, you put that all together, and afterwards you take the cream, you put it into little ramekins, and they tell you to râper de la muscade dessus, so to put some nutmeg on top. The other recipe, the crème brûlée, is going to be the same procedure, but this time you're going to broil the top of the cream. Just like what most of you know, crème brûlée with that very broiled, crispy top um, with a little bit of sugar. So we can see that recipes that we um, know very well to be French were also enjoyed in, in French Canada, but also they're enjoying other styles of recipes. There's crème portugaise, so Portuguese cream. There's crème au jeu de citron, so orange cream. There's crème blanche. This is uh, with the blanc d'oeuf, so the whites of the eggs are the main component found in this cream. Now, after all of those recipes, when we get to chapter 17, we're finally talking about vegetables. And we think about the importance of vegetables in our daily lives today, this may not have been a daily staple for most people in French Canada, simply because of weather conditions, of the climate, of um, maybe where someone lived. Um, and also, vegetables were never considered to be a main part of the course. I mean, much of the time, what we consider to be a salad was fed to farm animals uh, back in the day. Nowadays, we incorporate all sorts of vegetables into our food. Many people are vegetarian, but... Um, 
back in the day, particularly 1840, were not seeing fully vegetarian diets, at least in Western European and uh, European origin North American cultures just yet. That I know of. If you know of one, please let me know and I'll talk about it on the next podcast, but I am not familiar with that at all, and I haven't seen it in any of the research that I've done on this topic. So I'm noticing an emphasis when I'm looking at this chapter mostly on things that you can preserve really easily or keep in a cellar for a long time, particularly potatoes. So I see a lot of recipes for potatoes here, uh, potatoes cooked in lard, potatoes cooked with hollandaise sauce, potatoes cooked uh, in the German style, potatoes cooked in the Polish style, potatoes cooked in a frying pan, potatoes cooked with onions, potatoes, uh, a cake of potatoes, potatoes for garnishing. So you can see that a lot of different cultures had already influenced French-Canadian cuisine, and those recipes were coming together in this book so that people knew what to do with their potatoes. Uh, there's very few recipes for other vegetables, so I will continue on to the next chapter, which talks about beverages. So it talks about making beer, making liqueurs, making wines, etc. It starts with beer. It talks about ginger beer. It talks about uh, beer made from roots of trees. It talks about a beverage made from the leftover stuff from a harvest. Uh, you take five gallons of water and a half gallon of melasse. Uh, so melasses, une pinte de vinaigre, so a pint of vinegar, et deux onces de gingembre, and two ounces of ginger en poudre. And it says that you take some ginger, uh, powdered ginger, and then um, you make it, you mix it all together, you heat it up, and it's apparently good for your health. So there were some uh, health foods included in here, or health drinks rather, included in here. It talks about making coffees. It's got café au lait, café à eau. So the, the café au lait, the, the milk coffee that we're so familiar with from France. Uh, water with coffee, the easiest way to make coffee. And then the cookbook jumps almost immediately to cherry schnapps, which, I mean, you've had your, your healthy drink, you've had your coffee, now, we're, now you're ready to just sit down and have some, some alcohol. So they've, <laughs> they've got some schnapps, they've got some cider, they have curacao, which is very surprising for me to see curacao, the blue curacao, if you think about that, uh, more of a so South American drink, but they have a um, recipe for it in here. They have seltzer water. They also have how to make or orangeade, orange aid, how to make lemonade, how to make anisette liquor, how to make oh a ton of liquors. They have mint liquor, they have cherry they have raspberry, they have strawberry, cassis, they have um, lemon liquor. I mean, they, they really have a liquor for almost everything in here, um, <laughs> which is not a bad sign. Um, they also have um, blueberry syrups, they have um, currant syrups, cherry syrups. So, I mean, they're really showing you different ways to, to mix and match drinks. They also have um, champagne and cider, and talks about how to make wine as well. So it's uh, wine for apples especially, um, and wine based off of, let's see, we have vin de gadelle, which as far as I know is another type of currant wine. So they're really not talking about the traditional wine, but they're talking about other wines that you can make based off of what's available in the region. 
And then at the end, they talk about diverse recipes. So they talk about how to make butter. They talk about how to make, uh, how to beat the butter. And I mean, there's pages upon pages of talking about how to make good butter. They talk about salted butter. They talk about cheese, etc. So very surprising to take a, a little gander through this, this book and see, you know, what is in this book. And then at the end of the book, there's a table of contents that summarizes all of the recipes. It's got the page numbers. It's, it's very easy to consult the end of the table of contents of the book. So overall, this book really shows what French-Canadian culture, what French-Canadian food, and what French-Canadian traditions there were in 1840 and onwards. I'm honestly really surprised at what I found in this cookbook, particularly for the time it was written, particularly for how many different recipes were in the cookbook from other cultures outside of France, and just the fact that it was so popular that this book sold so many copies. The book that I'm reading, uh, that I was reading from for this podcast was from the fifth edition of the book. So it continued to be a book that people used, that people kept in their homes, and that people loved, that people added to, that people would share other recipes with the publisher and that would eventually be published. So I hope that this little bit of information that you've learned today in our podcast about cookbooks and French Canada helps you to understand a different side of history. Until next time, thanks for listening to the North American Francophone Podcast. Take care.